Welcome to episode 283 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lippas Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? I'm also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. I just realized I'm pointing to, to my left and you guys are actually to my right, but oh, well, whatever. So you're <laughs> physically facing south? You uh, gesture? I don't know. I just like kind of imagine you guys are, are off to the right, and, but you're actually off to the left. Oh, so you're facing north then? I am facing north at the uh, moment. Yeah, that's true. Which way you're, you're facing, let me think here, if I remember correctly, you're facing the ocean. Mark? Me? I yeah. uh, have to think about that for a second, but no, I'm actually facing east right now. Are you sitting at the end of your table? Like, No, I'm sitting at my um, coffee table on the oh, couch. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you were sitting at your dining room table. Yeah, sometimes I sit was. there, but today I'm not. All right. And I have no idea where I'm sitting because I've never seen his place. Yeah, I pulled out the compass because I figured you would ask. I am <laughs> I am facing 229 degrees southwest. Well, there you go. Southwest. You're looking over that way. Okay, gotcha. All right. Okay, well, we got some fact check from last week. Uh, I was talking about uh, the size, the v- physical height of the um, the new Mac Pro rack mount unit. Um, turns out it is actually eight, 8.67 inches or 22.02 centimeters for those of you on the other side of the world, uh, or five U's. Now, a U is sort of a standard rack rack mount unit, and like the the X serves were one one U high. It's roughly about an, an inch and a quarter, I guess. Um, and uh, well, that's be next week's fact check. But but my point was that so I looked up some some. I just grabbed ran, went to a random site today to find out what the co-location c- costs are per month for that would be. So a single U would cost roughly thirty five dollars a month. A four U, which is a standard a server height, would be eighty dollars a month, and a, to rent a full rack would be forty two U is around $500 a month. And that's a lot cheaper than when I was... I used to co-locate my X-Servs back in the day when I was actually hosting websites and stuff. Uh, physically doing it myself, I mean. Um, so the interesting thing is the Mac Pro rack mount is actually five U's high. So it's going to cost you... you know, if, That's sort of my point was last week work, work was that it's going to cost somebody you know $100 a month to host this thing somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So And like a lot, a lot of people, like if they have a real business going, they don't just have one single server. They might have a couple. They'd have like, you know, some redundancy and things things like that. And uh, they might actually, you know, in that case, they might might as well just get a full rack, right? <laughs> Put yeah. that in there. I, yeah. I don't know that too many people will be using these in a in in a server type of role, right? I mean, an external server type of role, because I mean, I, I could see it. Yeah, I could see them rack mounting for internal use, but to get yeah. them in a, you know, reasonable, get them off the desk. Like but render farm or something like that. Yeah. 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 But, but yeah, well, I guess I, I, I suppose they could have a render farm somewhere and that could be remote, yeah. I suppose. They wouldn't be using them necessarily for things like um, you know training machine learning models because they're kind of expensive for that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, even though there's a lot of power, but you know you, what you're really getting with this thing is all of the you know the super powerful like graphics rendering engine. Yeah, I would think stuff. video production and, yeah. and editing and maybe sound editing might be something you would use. You need yeah. this kind of horsepower and, for. And not. so yeah, exactly. So so in, do people who do that kind of stuff do they usually keep these things remotely or do they keep them on site? That I don't know. I don't know, but there are entire entire far like. There's a place in Toronto, and there's places all throughout the states that just do Mac Mini co-locating. So you, you'd buy you'd buy or rent a Mini, or you you buy a Mini from them, and they yeah. put it on the rack, and and they give you remote access to it. So you never actually 
had when IMS servers were being co-located located about 50 miles away from here from me right now I very rarely went and physically visited them if I ever had yeah. calls talk support and say can you go push the power button on the front to oh, yeah for sure for sure and those are yeah. yeah less less high power I won't call them low power but relatively no. low power machines that are perfect yeah. for web servers and things like that where you don't yeah, really yeah, need yeah. a super large amount of, of oh, like, like it could also be for like Jenkins running Jenkins right. exactly like build yeah. servers exactly yeah. yeah 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 but you're not gonna you're not gonna use a Mac pro, a new Mac Pro for that because you're just throwing no. away dollars doing that well no not unless you not unless you had like a large large group and you wanted to break like you might break the the Xserve down into and have um, virtual machines running on it yeah. and use them as virtual uh, virtual build machines right which 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 case you'd have more than one running on a single machine that way you right. could, you know utilize the disk space and the and the horsepower yeah. and the speed and stuff right? yeah I, I still don't know that it, that one of these would be cost effective because they're so expensive no but who I mean, knows yeah. yeah who knows again again why again yeah I mean like there's a lot of a lot of question marks as to why why we even need a Mac Pro like the you know it's like the thing is that Apple tried to get into the server market back in the in the, the 90s right and or they all the way along and we'll talk about that in a minute too because they've been trying to do server stuff since since the get-go since Max even before Max came out right um, but yeah they never really were able to to you know unhinge the Windows servers of the world the Unix the Suns you know Sun Microsystems servers of the world right um, SGI was the big guys in graphics and and Dell is kind of kicked everybody's ass in terms of like you know inexpensive servers right, right. well for sure uh, people I mean, like Disney or Pixar or places like that who are doing a lot of CGI I'm sure yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're using these but but I would I would guess those guys are just have a big giant server room in house I would think well this is why the 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 trash can Mac Pro was sort of like almost like it's going to be a road apple in a few years because it from from its expandability practically yeah. like you can't rack mount it there's a lot of reasons why you know other than you need to have a fast computer on your desk right um, it's kind of a limited project product in that way right yep. like, I think that's why people were happy to see the end of it right yep. anyway kind of moving on to the next thing was the other thing I had for follow up is I mentioned the Macintosh office last week um, and I forget what the reference was but so I, I went and checked it out because I wanted to find out what that was and it turned out that um, and this is an interesting story because the Apple tried originally to get into the business world with obviously with the Lisa which was the first you know Mac uh, or it was they even make called the Mac XL after they rebranded it after the Mac success and they also had the laser printer which ran PostScript of course right so when they had so they, they came up with this, this networking called Apple Link I think it was um, and they would I should, probably should open the article and look at it because it told me what it was anyway um, so they, they tried to, they had this way of networking computers together and uh, what's interesting about this um, yeah it was called AppleNet um, they could connect a Mac and, and they, they might even have a Mac as a file server kind of thing and then the printer and they wanted to get into this whole business business of, uh, of you know office stuff but um, and you know and eventually went to like a thing called phone net which was inexpensive using coaxial phone cables so when I got into networking computers like I had we had two Macs in, in the original art department I worked in and we wanted to connect them together so we could do some file sharing there was a product called tops right which was one of the first sort of third party things that came along one was from um, one was like what would be, eventually become Sun Microsystems created an, like an Apple talk based file sharing um, this is under system six of course right and so we could do peer to peer file sharing and that kind of stuff and um, and also laser printing to this we would share the same laser printer but what happened was you know it, it didn't sort of uh, take off for Apple in terms of business it took off for Apple in terms of desktop publishing right because now that they can network and connect you know artists together with printers that's where the whole desktop 
desktop publishing boom came out of came out of this whole effort of what we call I'm doing air quotes the Macintosh office and it was the Lemmings commercial I talked about last week which was, which was a commercial promoting the Macintosh office uh, which was kind of interesting so um, yeah that's, that goes I've forgotten about tops I still have my, my floppies with my tops software on it and I have a couple of phone net connectors around here somewhere and a few laser printers of course hanging around but yeah that was uh, my story about the uh, Macintosh office and yeah nothing else I can say about that alrighty um, ask MTJC do we have any ask MTJC besides my rant here honey yeah you have a, a link that you had tagged okay what does it say? oh yeah this is uh, this is relating to we talked about hypercard many times on the show I think um, I think it was my probably the first thing I ever did for programming uh, was this amazing program um, by Bill Atkinson called Hypercard and do you remember the game Mist Mark yep so Mist was actually written in Hypercard oh okay I didn't know if you knew that or not but yeah, there's a video here Clink, I linked that with uh, Ask MTJC because I know we talked about Mist and we've talked about uh, Hypercard in the past um, and the other thing was was my <laughs> I don't know I'm shaking my head because and this is my okay boomer moment because um, I've been talking about well simple about how wonderful it is to have this sort of self you know automatic you know uh, um, retirement savings program automatic trading and they now got this they're coming out with this bank system and you can have you know a cash account with a with a debit card or a visa card with with no fees and all that kind of stuff. all this promise of wonderful new stuff and yet their customer service i gotta say i'm sorry they did get in touch with me today after i ranted on on twitter but like why did i have to go to twitter to try and get customer service i called them they never answered the phone like three four days in a row i tried emailing them no response it wasn't until i went to the socials and kind of you know put it out there that that uh, they're not doing a great job at uh, customer service that they actually reached out to me. So yeah, I just it's just like I said, the OK Boomer moment. Like this is not what <laughs> those of us who've been around for a while call customer service. Just because you make a great product and you put it out there, you can't support your customers. Get off the porch. Anyway, to my rant. No comments. <laughs> I have no experience with the product and I, I can definitely understand some of the, the concerns there. It's it's kind of a weird world when it comes to finance. I don't know exactly what uh, you know is going on in the Canadian financial world, but it's it's well, pretty they're trying nutty. to be international. They're also serving up their US. I had to I have to fill out a W eight IN form or whatever you call those a BN form or whatever it is for taxes, right? Yeah, um, it, it gets really weird and nutty when we're in a internet connected world where there isn't like a real clear like distribution like goods physically passing over some border yeah. um, and, and dealing with the changing you know laws and technology and so yeah. I, I kind of think that people will end up having a lot of these kinds of issues because I think we will have uh, many many bank accounts or, or financial accounts and there really isn't as far as I've seen any sort of like silver bullet to tie that all together yeah and make but it seamless, point is right? it's not so much about finance it's I'm talking about like putting a product out in the world right that's like virtual or, or you know use your phone to connect to it or whatever um at the end of the day you got to back up with some sort some kind of support right i mean like you even go back to marco Arment talking like four or five years ago when we talked about on the show that he was sort of saying that customer support isn't worth the effort right like like the sorry i shouldn't say that what i mean is he was saying that the amount of money that we make on the app store for selling our apps for like next to nothing and then having to support them doesn't 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 make sense like it's it's not scalable right like it's it takes more effort to support a product than it is than it does to write it and if we're not getting paid for that it, it was it's tough to sort of justify staying in business in this. But, you know, in this world where we have like Ubers and, you know, Ritual and all these, you know, push for pizza uh, type services out there, it's all great to try and disrupt the, disrupt the current brick and mortar businesses. But at the end of the day, you got to be able to support your customers too, 
right? Because not everything can be solved with a web form. Yeah, and I think that's, that's what... where you're going to see a mixture where um, when people's situations are relatively straightforward, um, the scalability of not really having to have support and like, yeah, we can have millions of customers because nothing, you know, really goes wrong or the, the times when things do go wrong, eh, it's not that huge a hassle, right? It's when it's uh, either a, a big moment of need or like, I don't know, you were trying to, to get a down payment for a house in time to, you know, to seal yeah, exactly. the deal. Like yeah. you don't want that to ever go wrong, right? And right, exactly. And so I think some of these, these app and services models may or may not fit some of those. And that's where I think it won't be a sort of one size fits all. It'll definitely be a have multiple different apps and services that do this sort of thing and mix and match based on your needs. That doesn't excuse the the sort of general notion you're talking about of like, hey, support your customers. I'm like, yeah, that would be good. And if companies aren't, you can vote with your wallet and, and move elsewhere that is taking care of their customers. Yeah. I mean, it, like I like the promise of this tool and this, this service, but like it's hard for me to move away from traditional stuff where, you know, I could walk into a branch and I can, you know, can ask to speak to the manager kind of thing. Whereas, you know, here, who do I, who, I've got like Megan on, on Twitter that I can converse with, you know, kind of thing. Um, that's not fair to her. Right. But, you know, there's no other way to, to, to get a hold of anybody, it seems. Right. Um, it's interesting that you bring up that too, that the, the point you made about making a mortgage payment, because one of the things that I went to a hackathon on, on um, Delta hacks, and this is the sixth iteration of it in Hamilton this weekend, I was mentoring um, some developers and I met up with um, uh, a company called the um, Ample Labs. We talked, I think I may have talked about them before, but they're, um, they're doing an app for, they have an API, a chat bot for the homeless people in Toronto. And, and, you know, they've been talking to people in LA and Boston and places like that. And the idea behind this is you can actually use the app or you can use a chat, you can use their chat bot API to build an app for yourself, but you can also, uh, for the homeless people, they can go in there and say, look, I need to find a place to sleep. I need to find some food. I need to find some clothes, right? And the chat bot will say, what are you looking for? And you can sort of tell it what you're doing. And the statistic that behind this is that 90% of the people who are homeless have a smartphone. And a lot of cases, um, when how people become, and it's, you know, there's a shame and a stigma and they don't like to ask their friends for help because, you know, they're couch surfing or whatever. There's a whole hidden uh, network of homeless people out there, you know, and it's simple things like they missed a rent payment and they got evicted, right? They may have a job, they may be a developer, they may be working, you know, in a legitimate job and they, you know, they're paying their, their, their phone bill and stuff like that. But because something went wrong and they missed a, missed a payment, they're out on the street as it were. And I'm doing air quotes again, because they're obviously surfing on their couch, friend's couch, whatever. But, but it's an interesting thing. Like most people don't realize that homeless people aren't just the guys, you know, um, hanging on the street with a Tim Hortons cup in front of them. Right. So I'll put a link to the show notes for Chalmers, which is their chat bot, um, that these guys have put together. Yeah. This is a, anyway. to put a button on it. Um, this kind of dovetails with the discussion we had an episode or two ago about, um, the generation Z folks and their, uh, uptake yeah. of mobile usage, smartphone usage. And I kind of suspect we will see an even greater march towards cashless where even people who, um, are disadvantaged and end up homeless will probably have smartphones. And I think it'll look a lot like, um, homeless folks in China who, since WeChat is everything over there, they will have, you know, WeChat QR codes available for people instead of like a, you know, yeah, like exactly. a, a change yeah. cup. It's like, you know, scan my code and give me money. Well, it's interesting. And maybe we'll take this off the show, uh, like offside for a minute. But one of the things in, in Africa, they have a thing called M-Pesa and they use cell phones to pay each other, right? They went right from, from no internet to, to cell phone technologies and, and they're paying, there's, it's like microfinancing kind of stuff. They're paying like for cab fares and groceries and stuff with these, you know, somebody gives you a ride in a cab, you pay them through your cell 
cell phone kind of thing, right? And, and it's just a really low-level financing thing. But here's an idea that I had, and uh, like your idea about the QR code, is that something you've seen in the in the field or heard about with the WeChat money you said? Uh, I've not seen it myself because that, that sort of payment method doesn't really work over here from my understanding. I think you, yeah. you need to have, um, I don't know, I assume residency uh, of some sort in, in China to get the bank accounts for Alipay and WePay. Yeah. So, well, let me ask you something. So do you guys carry cash, much cash these days still? You pay for things with cash? Occasionally, but not that much. Yeah, now you got that cool Apple card, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So infrequently that uh, right before um, a business trip where I was like, all right, you know, I always like to have cash in my wallet just in case, you know, as a backup. You know, right, things just go in wrong. case. Yeah, some places like still don't take Apple Pay. Yeah. It's inconvenient to use a credit card sometimes. Yeah, and I, I looked and I said, oh, I have no idea how much money is in my wallet. And I looked and I said, hmm, this is $23. This is not enough. That's not enough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I need to either go to an ATM or go to like a grocery store, buy some groceries and then get cash back to get yeah. the cash back. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I usually carry around, I try to carry around 20 to $40 of, you know, in bills. And I like I use a Presto card, which is like a transit card. And, and um, you know, it's, it automatically fills with, with uh, credits every, every when, it, when the balance gets to a certain level. And I got to remember to carry at least three or $4 worth of coins on me because if I ever lose my Presto card, I'm not getting home. You know what I mean? Because mm. um, we don't have like, in, I think in New York, you can, you can tap with your smartphone now, right? To get onto a subway. But um, you can't just buy a token somewhere with a credit card? Well, you could. Um, yeah, there are places around to get it, but it, it's so convenient to use a Presto card is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, like yeah. you can get onto the, you can get onto the streetcar. There is a machine there. You can pop coins in to pay for your fare, right? And if you don't pay your fare, there, there are, there are transit cops that go around and they look, they scan your, your Presto card or they look at your transfer or whatever it is you have in your, or your physical ticket. Um, if you don't pay, it's like $450 or some crazy, and you have to stand there like for half an hour while they write you up kind of thing, right? Mm. So it's not a convenient thing to, to not pay, right? Or jump to, jump to turnstile or whatever. But um, yeah, it's kind of like, like you, you kind of got to, you got to keep that little bit of float on you, right? Like in terms of bills and, and coins, right? But uh, and for some reason, I don't know, I, like I said, I always carry around, you know, a few few bucks worth of change in my pocket. I, the last couple of weeks I've been like, I, I don't know what happened to the change. It didn't make it from one, one pair of jeans to another kind of thing, right? So um, so I had to ask Carol for like some coins the other day, right? To, to make sure I had uh, my backup plan taken care of, right? Yeah. I mean, I suppose, yeah, like you can't, I guess we do have a lot of places like if you go to buy something in a store, you can ask them to add cash back onto the onto the thing and they'll the machine will shoot you some money, right? You guys have that sort of system in your place? Wait, you actually States? talk to a person at a store these days? It's <laughs> very rarely. It's but, usually but even, uh, even, self-checkout at well, supermarket at least. Yeah, but even at self-checkouts, you can get cash, right? Like they oh, all have money in there. Oh, I don't think you can in Well, not yeah. the one I go to at least. Well, like, like I'll go to a hardware store or something and I buy like a hundred bucks at hardware, they'll say to me, or even grocery stores, they'll say, do you want cash back, right? Because you might need, you know, bills or something. You can get cash out yeah, of Yeah, they used to do that at supermarkets here, but haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, well, they still have it here and, and, yeah. and you know, at the Walmarts and whatever yeah. around. But uh, but yeah, but like, my point is like, yeah, we're, we're paying for everything with our, with our... People are still amazed when I pay with my watch, so I, which is funny. I paid for something the other day and the woman went, oh, wow, you did that with your watch. Or I paid for a beer at a bar, right? And, mm. and she's like, and this is like a bar in the financial area of Toronto, in the financial district, and she hadn't seen anybody pay with their watch, right? Which is funny. Yeah, what you should do the next time is just be like, watch as I hack your payment system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to pay for this. I'm a hacker. And then, and then oh, wrong. what? It went through. I was like, yeah. That'll go. Just right. that watch good. Wave my, wave my magic trick or I'll, 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 I'll do the Jedi. 
Jedi mind trick thing with my hand and wave over top of your payment device and it'll automatically go through. <laughs> like you, 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 you know, you emphatically put your watch down on top of it and you kind of hold your wrist there while it makes contact, but you could, you could fake them out with a, with a Jedi, Jedi hand gesture, right? Yeah. yeah and then suddenly you go from someone who's really cool to someone who's a complete nerd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. I think the more, the more subtle, the more subtle way is to go the remember Terminator 2, um, Eddie Furlong as John Connor. Remember when he and his buddy were hacking into the ATM machines and they say, they easy money. Easy Just say that because it doesn't necessarily date you if they don't know the reference. And if they do know the <laughs> reference, you can have a knowing wink and a nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even remember that. And I've seen that movie several times. All right. Um, let's move on. So, Hami, you got some follow-up for us? Yeah. the It's an end of an era. Well, coming up soon is the end of an era. This is a follow-up to the fact that we've talked about uh, Adobe Flash, which uh, surprisingly has, has still been around. Um, Adobe wasn't going to give up on uh, you know support until the end of this year in 2020, uh, mm-hmm. but the Safari technology preview, specifically number 99, uh, finally completely uh, removes Flash capability. It has been there, but disabled by default for a very, very long time. But soon, soon you will no longer be able to run Flash. and So you, you mean they're removing the ability to, to add the Flash plugin to Safari? Is that what you're going That's with? my understanding when I when I read this article. So all of those uh, those corporate, uh, you know, HR training sort of programs will eventually have to be changed into something else for those handful that still use Adobe Flash. So I wonder, does Chrome still support Flash without a plugin? I don't know. I know it's been disabled by default for a very long time. Oh, in, in Chrome as well? Similar, but I don't know if it's actually been removed or not. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, end of yeah. an era. Without, yeah, end of an era there. Does anybody, I mean, I very rarely use Flash these days, right? So That's why I brought up the, you know, giant corporation security training. Um, right. Those are the only ones I can think of that are, you know, still out there and use that. Uh, thankfully, the, the advent of uh, the iPhone's popularity pretty much killed the um, Adobe Flash restaurant menus and other sorts of right. things. You, you really haven't seen that for a long time. Mm. Good riddance. Um, this next piece was... Uh, uh, was about the Apple Car, which we've talked about several times before. Um, this started out with a tweet, and uh, if you click on the tweet that I've got there first, before we look at the article uh, that I've linked, um, somebody's dressed up a Porsche with the Apple rainbow stripes, and it says Apple Computer Inc. across the bottom of it. Um, this is a reproduction of uh, the car that's in the uh, article from Business Insider called, There's an Apple Car for Sale, but it's not the one that you think. And it's basically an Apple, a racing Porsche that was used in a racetrack. Um, and I guess Apple was a sponsor at one point and uh yeah so this car's come out for this is this is an article from 2016 yeah so it's probably already been sold but yeah it was just the article the car in the article was a, is a 36 year old porsche that even paul newman drove at one point um, for those of you maybe maybe your friends at the at work there mark don't know who paul newman is yeah maybe not but um <laughs> they uh, eat cool salad and luke for those of you playing at home at home <laughs> it's like i was gonna say they eat salad dressing <laughs> yeah interesting it's a white it's a white car too we've talked about the we've been we were predicting the white car with the 16 gigs of uh, storage, right? So, there you yeah, go. this one's definitely not going to be 49,999, though. That's, that's for damn sure. Oh, how much was it? Uh, it was a couple mil, I think. Uh, let's see. Oh, they refer cool, cool hand look in here. How about that? That wasn't too far off. Yeah, 4.5 million is what they, cause I don't know what it actually sold for, but the article says that's what they were expecting. So cool. Yeah, I really wish, like I heavily desire having this um, in the form of like a Hot Wheel limited edition or yeah, something. Yeah, that would be cool, eh? We should right? do that. Yeah. Like, 
yeah. that's the closest I'd ever get to ever being vaguely near this car. And the the design with the logo and everything and the so you know, the, the, the cheapest the, the thing rainbow. I bought at the Apple Store at Christmas time was I was in there and, and I saw this. Uh, they have a new Hot Wheel track that you can actually. Um, I don't know if you, all the toys these days have like an RFID chip in them or something like that. And so I've got in my hand the Star Wars Darth Vader Hot Wheel, and it's the same size as the Hot Wheels we used to get when we were kids. But this one has a chip in the bottom and uh, still mint in box, by the way. Um, and it was ten bucks, so insta buy, right? Eight ninety five, ten bucks with tax. But um, yeah, it'd be cool to see something like that as a Hot Wheel, right? Like a little. Uh, what were you thinking? Yeah, Hot Wheel, right? So what you said? Yeah, the Hot Wheel size. Yeah, that would be cool. We should we should get into production on that until somebody sues us, right? There's no such thing as bad publicity, Tim. That's what we always say. <laughs> well, some companies don't need our publicity. That's my point, right? Anyway. All right. So speaking of really old stuff, um, this goes back to the 27th. This is the 29th of January we record today. So it's so 10 years plus two days ago, the iPad was first introduced by Mr. Steve Jobs at, I guess this would have been a Macworld. Um, why is this URL not opening? Here we go. Yeah. So yeah, the, the OG iPad was introduced 10 years ago um, for... 549 19 gigabyte iPad. So, how about that? And, you know, I hate to say, I mean, I've said this many times before, I was telling people at work to do as well. I wouldn't be in the room doing iOS if it wasn't for the iPad. And I probably wouldn't be doing this show right now if it wasn't for the iPad. So, because I started out as an iPad developer. How about you guys? I was just going to interject and say, for those of you who are shaking your fist and said, 549, what are you talking about? That's because he's talking about Canadian no, no, and American from, dollars. That I'm would be 499. It says original, the original 16 gig iPad was priced at... Oh, this is Mobile Syrup, so it's a Canadian site, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry, It even says that. right next to the 549, CAD. CAD. Yeah. yeah, CAD, yeah. Or CDN, yeah. All right. I stand corrected. No, I mean, yeah. you, you were correct, just it was incomplete because a lot of people yeah. on the American side remember the the shock and awe of 499 when that's everybody true. thought yeah, it was going to be true. a $1,000 machine. Yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah. Because I remember uh, even James uh, Thompson was saying on Twitter that he thought it would be a 1000 bucks or four nine ninety nine, right? So there we go which is cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, life-changing device for a lot of us, as well as those, uh, in a similar way that the phone was for a lot of people. So, I know where one of my original iPads is in the hands of a friend of mine, and she's still using it to this day, running system or iOS 6 on it. Um, I'm hoping it comes back to me at some point in the future, because all the other iPads that I had and told to friends and said, you know, if when you're ready to part with it, bring it back and I'll give you some money for it. They, they got rid of them. I have a tear in my eye over that. Anyway, yeah. OG iPad, 10 years ago today. The, article, the next article I have here is, uh, this is a comeback story um they're predicting as we've i think we've talked about this before that we're they're predicting a new uh iphone se2 uh, which might even be called the iphone 9 they're guessing um i would think same size format as this is yeah we talked about this last week with min chi kuo talking about that right in the after show last week um yeah so uh what do you guys have to say about that have you looked at the article at all or similar to like an iphone 8 kind of capabilities yeah i'm really hoping that this will be similar to the original iphone SE and that it'll be a hot rod of, of performance by having just way too much processor and GPU for what little screen real estate it actually has. Because those, you those, think those it'll have the letterbox screen the same way this one does? Yeah, I don't. I don't really know how I how I feel about the the Touch ID part hanging around. I, I kind of thought that that would be um, you know deprecated and removed at some point, and and just have the iPhone 10 style design language be sort of the baseline. Like by now. What is it? Three ish years later, I just assumed it'd be cheap enough. Of like, oh yeah, we can manufacture those, you know, at a, at a dirt cheap price and have that, that run through. But maybe it'll hang around. I don't know. So this will be. You think it'll be the 
320 by 568 um, size in terms of resolution. Oh, they're saying it's same size as the iPhone 8, which is the larger device. Yeah, which people don't like the size. That's what I'm saying. Like, they want the smaller phones, right? That's what they liked about the SE. Well, it was the size and the cost is what people liked about the SE. So this one presumably will have a lower cost, but uh, yeah, but a larger screen. So so they never made a non-home button screen in this size. Right, right. right. Was, this was, a, you know, different different form factor. So maybe they can reuse existing engineering and parts. So that's why they wouldn't uh, put in the, the, the uh, Face ID the stuff. Face ID, yeah. yeah. Well, the Face ID, I think the, the scanner and all that kind of stuff probably costs a bit chunk of change, probably right? Probably does, so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because it's got that infrared scanner, right, as well? Yeah. So what do you call it? True depth the sensor, I think? I think you're right there. Well, the, is, yeah. At least for, for part of it, for sure. Yeah, the iPhone 10 didn't have that, though, right? That's why you... Uh, yeah, did, did it? The Face ID, yeah. Oh, okay. All right, all right, all right. That's the one with the notch, right? It did have Face ID. But yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking. I'm remembering wrong. Yeah. Well, I think, and I don't know if we're talking about the iPhone, the next iPhone, the iPhone 12 in this um, 12 Pro, I guess it would be the uh, in this episode of the show today. But uh, rumors I've been hearing is that the uh, that the through through the LCD Touch ID might come back. Right? We talked about that before. Um, do you think they'll stick with Face ID on on which on this particular lower no, on cost the next m- phone? I mean, on the next iPhone 12. Oh, like we're we're, we're sort of we're, Mark and I are sort of saying that we think that the Face ID technology would would kick the price up too high for people, right? Because they're looking for like a three hundred fifty dollar phone, right? Or three three ninety nine kind of thing. Yeah, but that was talking about the SE land, not oh, the yeah, like yeah. the next. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I guess not top of the line, but like the, the the normal iPhone, the normal iPhone twelve would be, you know, my guess, uh, Face ID based. Yeah. Well, I've been seeing renders of of like almost edge to edge type um, screens, right? Like maybe instead of a notch, it would have like just a very thin strip across the top. Because I mean, look at how the the iPad Pros they they have Face ID, but they don't compromise the the rectangle that's the screen, right? No. I mean, I don't know. We'll have to see. But yeah, so SE SE style phone coming back. Let's see what it is. I think I think making it as big as a um, an eight would be a mistake because I think people want that smaller size. Because the eight's almost the size of the ten, right? Isn't it? A little bit smaller. Yeah. A little bit smaller. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, they have pretty good marketing research there. You know, maybe it was more the price than the size that made the SE popular. So it's possible that a a low low price device with a bigger screen might actually do really well. Hard to say. Yeah, yeah. that'll become um, more important when we talk about uh, one of my picks. Anywho, um, I don't know why I put that in a pick. Actually, to be honest with you. All right. Um, next story here is uh, that the iPhone. Uh, we, I, we talk about this in a couple places. I think here. Yeah, we're talking about numbers in two places. So maybe we can consolidate these into one conversation. But um, so iPhone Apple has hit 1.5 billion active devices, um, and nearly 80 percent of those are running uh, the most recent iOS 13. I don't know if you saw this article at all, but um, yeah, this, this came out of the the uh, the um, quarterly. What do you call it? The uh, earnings. Tim uh-huh. Cook does earnings earnings call. Yep. Yeah. Do you listen to that, Mark? No, not not lately. No. Right. I used to listen to it all the time, but I don't lately. Yeah. So yeah, and apparently they posted a record-breaking fiscal quarter, first quarter of 2020, at 91.8 billion dollars. So and the stocks uh, 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 doing pretty well. They're up to what is it, 324 today? Is it that high? Of course, not as not doing as well as Tesla stock these days. How is that doing? Uh, well, after so they closed at around five. 60 today, but then after hours, after they had their earnings announcement today, they had kind of a blowout quarter. They, the stock in after hours trading, which we know doesn't really mean anything, but shot up 75 bucks in after hours trading. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Huh. I didn't even know it was, didn't even know that was a stock to watch. Oh, um, you haven't been following Tesla? Yeah. Tesla's been, Tesla stock has been exploding lately. Really? Yeah. Huh. yeah. Wow. Who knows what why that is means. that? Why is that? Just well, because 
Yes. Last two quarters. Welcome to the Accidental Tech Podcast, folks. Right. Sorry, go ahead. Last two quarters, they've actually had pretty good profit. And yeah. last time, they surprised a lot of people with the amount of profit they had. Huh. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm, I've, I can tell you just from the from the number of Teslas I see in my neighborhood, uh, it seems to be growing. You know, two years ago, it was one car, and last year it was two. And now now I'm seeing like, you know, three or four Teslas just on my, on my like five-minute walk to the streetcar in the morning, right? Yeah, they're all Tesla. over the place here. I mean, every other car you see is a Tesla around here. Yeah. Well, yeah. But remember, it- just, just because the company's doing well doesn't mean the stock does deserves this extremely high valuation. So be careful yeah, if you're yeah. an investor. Yeah. Well, it could be could be just uh, something to surf on for a short while. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it'd be a shame if you got into it and then and then it, it started to decline right away, right? So. Well, yeah. One thing that does sometimes happen, and I have no idea if it's happening here, but mm. but investors, when a stock goes up and up and up and up, yeah. fear of missing out starts to kick in. So people will kind of jump in. Right. And, you know, retail investors, which means the guy, you know, the guy on the street, you know, who sees the stock going up and says, oh, I want in on that. They start buying, and that's when the big guys say, "Oh, okay, you know, uh, we've made our two hundred percent return. Time to sell," mm. and they sell, and then the little guys get left holding the bag. It happens a lot, mm. so just be careful. Interesting, yeah. So there's a couple of charts back on this article here. It shows the iPad and OS and uh, iPhone usage. Um, iPhone is hovering. Depends on if this device is introduced in the last four years. It reached seventy-seven percent adoption of iOS thirteen, um, and for the iPad, it's like almost eighty percent of uh, users are on um, on iOS 13. That would be the iPad OS, right? Um, 57% of all iPad devices out there use iPad OS. Um, Wait, so this is what I didn't like about this chart. So it yeah. says for devices released within the last four years. Right, right. So well, that on, would be the pros, right? The, the iPad pros. I didn't look at iPad, but on I'm looking at the timeline for iPhone. And depending what you mean when you say four years, because we're kind of in a weird in-between spot, kind of yeah. halfway in between... Uh, the most recent iPhone and the next one that's coming up. Um, That is either the iPhone 6S uh, from September of 2015 or the iPhone 7 of September of 2016, depending how literal you are with four years. Yeah, I would think think iPhone 7 to to the 10 series, right, is what they're thinking? Because we had 7, 8, and then 10, right? Yeah, and those are fairly recent devices. Like, I know it sounds weird saying, you know, four years, but it's a a very weird twist on, on that where, you know, it's not unreal reasonable that folks might have a uh, what does not support 13 the iPhone 6 and 6 plus only goes up to iOS 12 they have to 6s to, to do 13 right yeah yeah 6s is a minimum which is what about the SE the SE looks like it supports iOS 13 right yeah I think it's the, the last of the small phones right yeah so we'll still have to support that sort of stuff and if you know developer side you still I think really should push for you know, handling safe area yeah I gotta tell so, you having to support that little phone these days is, is sometimes it's a pain in the butt when it comes to layout, right? It does sort of feel like the the basic layout almost always includes a scroll view at the very yeah. bottom, just because yeah. you know you're going to have to scroll on something like an iPhone SE. Yeah, yeah, we're challenged by that ourselves. All right, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I really think about that in, in my own stuff because I try to use the safe area kind of stuff all the time. Um, but yeah, you, you, you'll get bugs and defects opened on on the smaller devices. Anywho, um, all right, so I guess you're up next, honey. Yeah, this one's really short, but it is kind of an interesting sort of thing to think about in that uh, this is from Ole Begman, and he's got an article here about Swift UI and that uh, sheets, like the kind of, you know, sharing, uh, sorry, popover sort of sheets that you 
would present from a view. They don't automatically inherit the environment. For folks who may be familiar, we've talked about the environment as sort of like this, you know, magic god context thing that everything just sort of has access to, and you can pull down information, uh, you know, about sizes, about you know, stuff that you might might throw in there to figure out, you know, how do I want to render? Um, and he shows a pretty good example here about how uh, normally when you have things sort of related to each other in Swift UI, they do inherit, like you know, font modifiers uh, inherit sort of the way you'd expect. But you don't get that behavior with sheets that get presented sort of over the top modally. And and there's some little bit of discussion of like, well, maybe that sort of makes sense as a design decision. Like I, I could see arguing either way of like, well, I had this one root view, then I presented this child view. Shouldn't the child inherit from the parent? That's a pretty good argument. I, I could agree with you on that. Uh, but on the other side, I was like, well, this child view is kind of its independent context. So it kind of makes sense that it would be uh, not inheriting automatically. Um, and he does talk about ways to, to get around this and, and sort of manually uh, sharing stuff like yeah. the environment. There, there is some precedent to that. I mean, I can see both sides too, but there is some precedent to the not inheriting from UI kit, where if you think about presenting a or, or pushing a, a, a view controller on the navigation stack versus presenting one modally, certain things are included in, in the navigation stack, like you know, a navigation bar and and uh, all of the, you know, the the status, you know, preferred status bar and rotation stuff. You know, those all refer back to the navigation controller that's controlling the whole stack and everything that's inside there refers back to uses the those those uh, properties from the navigation controller but presenting something modally doesn't use any of that so it's its mm-hmm. own kind of independent stack in some sense so there's so there's some precedent i would say it's not completely out of nowhere yeah and and i think it was one of those things of like oh you really have to think about this or be aware of it and don't be surprised um given the newness of swift ui yeah. sort of new yeah. new ways of doing this stuff yeah. i think a lot of folks are very familiar with what you just described for the yep. navigation stack. Yep. But now we've got this this new thing. It's like, oh, okay. All right. It's good to know that if, if you're ever ripping your hair out wondering why, why don't I have access to this dang environment the same way? What's right. going on? Well, this is what's happening. Or maybe it's just a bug and it'll get fixed in the next version. <laughs> and, and, and that is the admittedly dangerous and, and very caveated here on this very episode of, you know, don't take it as gospel until it's actually, you know, listed out somewhere. It's like, yes, explicitly, this is what happens. Are you saying your mileage will vary? Your kilometerage may vary, yes. <laughs> All right. So take us down the road there, Jaime. Yeah, on the road to Swift 6. This is on the Swift.org forums. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at this, but there's how many a uh, handful of items that they sort of point out of like what are they looking to do for swift six like, what mm-hmm. are the, the main goals uh number one here they talk about accelerating the growth of the swift software ecosystem which i guess sort of makes sense they're, they're doing things to make it so that it's not just uh, uh i think as many detractors outside of the ecosystems AI. it's this this niche language well, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of Apple-based developers, so careful what you call that, a niche or niche language. Um, but I still think it's be good to, to get that out there you know, ecosystem-wise. And I think hand-in-hand in that is part two about creating a fantastic development experience. Certainly, we've talked about on this very show that Miles should sure be great when Swift builds just as nicely as Objective-C does. Uh, that was very much true on, on day one, and it's still mostly true with regards to build times and giving you reasonable information about 
about what went wrong when the compiler barfs at you. Uh, I think even more so with SwiftUI thrown into the mix. Uh, number three here was one that worries me slightly. Um, this is called number three, invest sorry, invest in user powering. Sorry, let me restate all of that. Yep. Number three, invest in user empowering language directions. The idea that they want to have more capabilities to have uh, expressive and elegant APIs, such as variadic generics, uh, generics and generics and uh, generics. domain specific language capabilities like function builders. I think on the one hand, that's fine. I definitely like the ability to have stuff that is uh, more powerful, more expressive. I do take a little bit of a critical eye just given Swift's history of not really giving in to the um, the folks that are like the language wonks of like, wow, wouldn't it be really cool academically if this thing could be done? Sure, it'd be great, but will we actually use that or is that just sort of a scratching an itch to, to get something out there sort of thing? And since this is open source, you have an opportunity to, to bend the language to your will. So I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye on, on this particular sort of uh, investment here. And I also think, uh, so they're talking about um, using working group model that they use for the server domain stuff and applying it to other areas. So they've got a, a person who's going to be behind the port of Swift to Windows. So that's sort of in line with the idea of spreading outside of our, our normal little ecosystem. And somebody's still focusing on um, uh, on the, the core team working on the server domain. So that'll be good. And they also mentioned on the path to Swift 6 that there will be more uh, 5.x releases prior to actually seeing Swift 6 itself come out. Um, a, a big part of what they're also looking to do is figure out where the um, the memory ownership model fits in with regards to the concurrency model that they're still figuring out for Swift. So I don't think there's any promises per se that that'll land in 6, but it'd be nice to see that sooner than later. Cool. And that post was from Ted Kremenich as well, leader of the Swift people, peoples of the Swift world. All right. Uh, this is a quick one. We were talking about stocks. I don't know if it's going to be in the offer show or the pre-show or whatever, but uh, um, Jamf is a, a manufacturer of um, mobile device management or enterprise device management tools for Mac. Um, and uh, they are, this is Jamf Software LLC. They're um, planning on having a filing for IPO soon. So something to keep an eye on if you're looking for something to invest in. They're um, probably the leaders in MDM uh, in the world, I think it's pretty safe to say. Um, something like 3,500, 35,000 customers are using Jamf today, um, which is interesting. Cool. 1,000 employees in 10 countries. So that's something to keep an eye on. And yeah, so we're talking about the we're talking about the quarter. quarter have we talked, covered this pretty much? This is another article here that I've posted about uh, delivering the best ever quarterly numbers powered by iPhone sales and services. Do you guys have a chance to glance through this? or Not this particular article, but I looked at the number and yeah, yeah, things continue to be moving in a very positive direction. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even hit the 5G refresh yet. Right. Yeah. And it also is definitely the case that we're we're going to see an interesting bump at some point, I guess, November, probably, mm -hmm. when we start seeing how does Apple TV Plus really work as a business oh, model, right? Because they're, they're getting like tons of subscribers. I think I saw some article that was talking about it having uh, more subscribers than Disney Plus, uh -huh. which honestly, isn't that surprising? I mean, you're getting it for, for free. <laughs> for, for many, many of those people, uh, yeah. I'm not sure how many people are actually paying now, but certainly, you know, the rubber will hit the road when, when the free year is up for everybody who, who bought stuff this past fall and see yeah. how many of those are actually forking out their cash for this. You don't think that they'll be, uh, they'll be, um, still offering some sort of free year going forward? Like when you buy new equipment? I don't think it'll be a year cause that's a really long time. I, I really do believe that the year was a, look, we, we've got like three 
three shows. You can't mm-hmm. charge five dollars a month for three shows, mm-hmm. right? So give people a year, give us time to build up a back catalog, and then I think they'll do probably a month free trial, three months at most. And there's a really decent chance it'll be like a week free trial sort of thing. Right. That's what I think the business model will be because it it is on the surface of it, it is enormously generous to give an entire year for for that stuff. And I think it's because they didn't have the catalog. It's it's very different than like, imagine if Apple, uh, Apple music launched with like 10 songs you could listen to, right? Like Mm -hmm. they they could, they'd have to give it away for free for a while until they actually had a decent catalog. They couldn't do it with that. Well, the article here claims that the, the services were, Rose uh, 17% to 12.7 billion, driven by the launch of Apple Apple TV Plus and the new credit card, as well as you know iCloud and other subscription things that Apple's running. Right. So yeah, I, I do think it's contributing for sure because not everybody bought new new devices that that qualified. Right. But I think you'll see a very large wave come November of people um, signing up or or not or I guess not signing up, continuing to to yeah. be you know customers, actual paying customers at that point. So are you guys using Apple? TV currently? You, you just got your new Mac, right, honey? You haven't opened it up? Yeah, yet? I haven't set it up, and, and they actually have an after-show item to talk to you about it. All right. Mark, you're not using Apple TV? I'm not, no. no? Just, yeah, I'm just curious, because, I mean, like, you know, more. there's a couple of new shows have come out over the last little while that people are, are saying are pretty decent, because, uh, you know, the, the, the initial shows that started out with the um, morning show, the, the Apollo one, um, and um, the M. Night Shyamalan one have all finished. Like, you know, if you if you if you joined up early, you know, by now, you where you've gone through all eight episodes of each one of those shows, right? Uh, so now you're sort of into the, now it's kind of like what's left, right? Um, but there are some new shows that have just come out recently that uh, people are raving about. And one, like Day in a Life or something like that, I forget what they call it. But uh, So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And, and like you said, how it competes against the Netflix. And we talked about on Spotcast that Netflix is still um, growing uh, in terms of subscribers in spite of the fact that um, Disney and Apple Plus have stepped onto the uh, playing field. All righty. Well, it brings us to our picks. I've got a, a pick Rama here, but um, which we can go through. Um, this one is kind of interesting. It was an article I, I read through it, and I didn't actually go through the, the exercise of trying any of the code out. But uh, this is a, an article about uh, speech synthesis and speech recognition, um, and uh, talks about uh, the the ways you can use. And I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. Ways to use uh, the speech um, in AV Foundation, I believe. And waiting for the page to load up here. Do, 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 do. Uh, just think, I just updated, upgraded my internet last week. <laughs> um, yeah, this is beyond the, the regular run-of-the-mill Hey Siri stuff. But yeah, it talks about using AV Foundation to to um, uh, have um, to deal with with uh, what you say to, the, to your application and um, how it speaks back to you, kind of thing. Um, you know, setting up the permissions to be able to use uh, recognition. Okay, of course, there's like a um, disclosure statement you have to put in there for that as well. Um, and then yeah, just some code samples here on how to uh, go through the various cases for using uh, the speech recognizer to be able to have people talk to your applications as well, right? And there's a little, little sort of tutorial here, which I, you know, I haven't haven't gone through. I was reading it on the streetcar, but it um, seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, so if you're into uh, speech recognition, check out this this article, which I'll have a link in the show notes, and it's called Speech Recognition and Speech Synthesis on iOS and Swift. Comment, nothing? I haven't done the synthesis part, but I've done the recognition part mm-hmm. before, and this looks, just eyeballing the code, this looks about what I did for that, just for a little toy project of oh, recognizing Oh yeah, I can make a talking moose with this, right? <laughs> You <laughs> yeah, you, you, you totally could. 
So the next article here was, and I was the one I was talking about earlier that I wasn't sure if this should have just been a follow-up item. Um, but this is, uh, we've been talking about, or I've been lamenting about the fact that, you know, we don't have things like, uh, what do you call the Apple payment program where you can buy a phone through Apple uh, with a monthly fee and rather than have to, you know, fork over the $1,500 Canadian to get a phone. Um, Rogers, as of uh, this month, as of like a, a week ago, has decided that they're no longer going to be subsidizing phone plans. Um, they had a program called Edge where you could uh, you buy a phone and you paid like so much money and a percentage of that went into paying for the hardware. So you would have to pay up, you have to pay them like $450 or whatever up front to get the new phone. And then they would they would basically, over the next two years, charge you um, uh, one price that would include the, um, the purchase of the phone as well as the, the service you were paying for, You're usually like a 10 gig service. Um, but they've now done away with that. So now the only option you have is this program they have called Ultimate Edge, or I should check it actually. Um, but the idea behind this one is that um, you uh, you basically pay them nothing up front. Uh, you have the phone contract for a couple of years, and you pay, uh, for example, like a 64 gig iPhone 11 Pro would cost you 58.96 per month uh, in financing. Uh, oh, it's the upfront edge is what they call the option, um, and that's a has a base of 75 dollar plan. So you're going to be paying 133, 134 dollars per month uh, over the next two years, roughly going to pay about $3,200 for um, the phone for the two years. And that's not including tax. You have to add your 13% GST or whatever you pay in your province across the country. Um, but if you do the math on that, it works out to be uh, $5 more than if the old plan. So just Rogers is just being, I guess, a bit more uh, transparent about what they're charging you for and giving you this option to, to have a phone, like a new phone, without having to, to hide and mask and make it really confusing. Because I can tell you that negotiating with these guys about uh, what phones you can get is, is always a challenge. But um, So you don't have to fork out money up front. I guess that's the, the bottom line of this, out of, out of yeah. this one. So this is pretty much how we have it here in the U.S. Uh, yeah. We used to have programs like you described uh, when the iPhone first came out. For the first few years, you would pay something like a couple hundred bucks and you get a new phone, uh, but you'd have to sign a two-year contract and you'd be locked in. So they were making their money back that way. Right, yeah. But they did away with those several years ago. I don't know. I can't remember exactly when it happened. And now we have very similar to what you just described where you essentially get it for free and you have a monthly monthly plan that you pay for yeah yeah so but i, I mean the 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 math is that you know you're not really paying um i mean you you would pay less per month it would seem but you would for, you would have forgotten about having to pay the 450 up front right and uh right but if you if you add that you know the you'd be paying like 2700 and you add the 450 back in you're you're paying still around 3200 don't do the math i'm just averaging these numbers out but the article does spell out what the numbers are but uh, yeah so you'd end up paying about the same amount of money over time to, to have the phone. Um, they came up with this ulti- um, upfront edge option around the time the iPhone uh, 11 and the 11 Pro came out. Um, I remember talking to the, Apple, the people at the Apple store about it, and uh, it was sort of a, similar to the option that you have in the States, Mark, or the one you were, you, I don't know if you're still on anymore, but you were on before where you, you, you bought your phone from Apple and you paid so much per month, and then after the end of two years, you just went on to the next phone, right? After one year, um, you could do that. After one year, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a similar idea here is that you're, you're into this plan and because uh, I mean most people really stick, I, I don't know if everybody does this but like when I could do it I would tend to basically you know get a new phone every year right so and it would like so Carol and I each were offset by a year so one of us gets the new phone kind of thing um, we just back and forth uh, over the years but um, so I guess every two years we refresh our phones but uh, we all seem to have the I currently don't have an iPhone 11 Pro and sort of kind of worrying about that but yeah so that's a new interesting uh, way that Rogers is doing it and apparently the other competitors are coming 
uh, coming along with the same sort of plan. I'm sure Bell will follow suit shortly as well. Um, I had a couple of other things that I found on Twitter today. I'm going to talk about this one, and maybe I'll talk about the, the one that I didn't put in the show next week. Um, but uh, this is a quick little tip from if you're doing any of the tutorials um, on uh, Swift UI, you will know about uh, Xcode previews, where when you when you build a, a Swift UI class, um, you've got that canvas view on the side, and you can look at the you can look at the preview of what you're doing, and if you're going to you know include that into a into another um, U, uh, Swift UI class, you would, you could preview just what the, like a table cell would look like, or like a, you know sort of a little um, region of a screen. You could build that in a, one class, and then you could you could preview it, and you could then include it into your into your main project. But what this um, tweet here points out is that you're not restricted just using uh, Swift UI to do this. Um, you can actually there's a screenshot here. You can actually use this, these Swift previews um, anywhere, like uh, um, in your in your code, whether it's Swift UI or not, right? So um, which is nice. So a nice feature of Xcode 11 to be able to do that. So give that a shot. A little example here in, in code that the guys uh, provided. But yeah, it's a massive, he says, massive improvement on Apple's development systems, not just for uh, Swift UI. So that's cool. That's my third pick. And so Jaime, you have a pick for us? I do. And it's a very quick one here. And it's not, uh, I don't think on the on the surface of it, I don't think it's terribly exciting, but I, I read this from, uh, from Jesse Squires. And I thought, huh, that's something I've just sort of done naturally for a very long time in Xcode. And I don't yeah. actually know if other people do it the same way. Maybe it's like a, a quirk of, a, of a, I thought of myself, but apparently of other people. So this Xcode tip is to use breakpoints like as if they were bookmarks. So, um, you know, setting a breakpoint on a line, but uh, disabling it so it doesn't actually stop the code at that point. It's something that I've done for a very, very long time. And I, I realized when I thought about it that in a lot of cases, it sort of ended up being a really good way for me to uh, informally track my progress in terms of understanding this code base that I'm joining, right? So I'm joining a new company, a totally different code base. And I realized like, yeah, I would leave breakpoints. Like, okay, here's where I was tracing through how does login work? How does it work to uh, upload a file? How does it work to you know render something to the screen? And I just litter everything with all of these different breakpoints that were effectively bookmarks where I would start clearing them off when I felt like, yeah, I kind of know how this part works. I don't need this set of breakpoints anymore. Uh, I, I really don't know where this is. If I ever have to fix a bug related to it, uh, I'm going to leave this one here as a bookmark so I can easily come back to it if a, a bug comes in for production. Do you, you guys do anything at all? Vaguely well, it's similar? interesting. I just want to point out that there's probably like half of the audience is cringing about the fact that like like my like I know that my the desktop of my Mac has a whole bunch of folders and uh, and files lying around on it, and I do have a tool to go through and organize them. But yeah, there's always those there's always clutter on the desktop. If you ever looked at my, any of my projects, you'd find that I have probably a thousand breakpoints throughout my apps, right? Um, and some of them might actually be active for all I know. But um, yeah, so I kind of sort of do this too. But I, I do know there's like a, uh, one of the things that Derek Salander, um, who's the you know the um, archetypal uh, debugger guy in Xcode, um, he's got he's he's uh, one of his talks. He talks about how to how to use a command to clear all your bookmarks um, on a frequent basis. Yeah, so I think he's probably one of the purists who doesn't like to leave any bookmark or any breakpoints in his. Uh, did I say bookmarks? I meant breakpoints. Um, but yeah, it's, I read this article too, or this read, read this tweet too, and I thought it was interesting um, an interesting use of it. But yeah, because I think I do use it, but I don't think I necessarily use it to go and find things per se, but uh, I do know when I'm stepping through my code, I see where I've left the, left the breadcrumbs, right? So I guess it's more breadcrumbs for me than, than bookmarks. What about you, Mark? 
don't really use it for that so much. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to, uh, of course, as you know, Tim, I, I use breakpoints really heavily for debugging, so I tend to have them all over the place as well. Uh, but I think my, my problem is that I have so many around that have been disabled, you know, that so I can turn them on later that, yeah. that it probably wouldn't help because it's, it's, you know, kind of too much of a good thing. It's, I can't mm-hmm. find anything because I have, I have them everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, so I can't say that I do that, but it's, it's an interesting idea, especially, especially for when you're looking at a new code base. I mean, I like that. I like that idea. I like that concept. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to open up one of my, one of my biggest projects that I have on the go. Just to, I'm curious to see how many breakpoints I have in it. I know it's a lot. While you do that, I think if there are enough people who do this sort of thing, it makes me think that this speaks to the idea of it might be nice to have a feature that actually does <laughs> properly yeah. do bookmarks, yeah. right? And even better if it's hooked up into being able to understand um, versions of code you know, through, through Git integration. So it would be sort of like a stable thing of like, where did this thing move to? Where did this line of code uh, move to over time? Because I have had that problem where, oh, dang it, I switched to a branch that is completely different and all of my little bookmarks here will not work. And maybe even having a notes feature so you don't have to go and put comments into the actual code. If you're, when you're, say, you're learning a new a new code base, sometimes you want to make a note of something um, so you remember for next time. Uh, now you could do that just by adding a comment, but then you've actually changed the code base. So if you had a, a notes feature where you could have like a sticky note or something or a, or something like they do with the uh, collaboration tools where you have a little popover that you can type in. That might be kind of a useful thing. Yeah, like annotations that people will have on ebooks. Right, right. Yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense because I have done something vaguely similar, but my my, my poor man's way of doing it, uh, again, very similar to the, the breakpoint things is, oh, here's this interesting thing I've found. Um, I don't want to comment the actual code in the repository because now everybody else has to deal with the, right. the mess. I have made comments in the code and stashed that away, um, either in a git stash or in a git branch uh-huh. that I can actually just look at, you know, because it's, it's actual code there, but I'm the only one who, who sees that. Sort of a poor man's way of like, where the heck does this thing come from? All right, let me leave a little, you know, a little. Yeah, here's an interesting idea. Here. What if, what if you had everyone who was on your development team who's working on the same code base? You could, you could pop open one of these little collaboration bubbles like you have in, you know, Google Office or whatever, uh, and ask someone a question about that line of code, and then it shows up on maybe it doesn't just, you know, in a spammy way pop up, but it, you know, it becomes visible that someone's pointing something out in the code base. So it doesn't actually go into the repo. So it's not part of the code. It's just part of the IDE. And and the IDEs are all linked with your coworkers. So you could have sort of real-time comments popping up in your code. That'd be kind of interesting, huh? You understand? Does, does it make sense what I'm describing? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you layer Google Docs on top of that experience on top, on top of, of Xcode, what Xcode yeah. can do, that would yeah. be a really, really sweet yeah. thing. Now, I guess it might, it would be sort of hard if people are working on different branches and they're editing the same files and you're, then how does it know where to put the thing? and stuff like that so there's there's some complications to it uh, but uh, but it was I think it still could be kind of an interesting thing well, it's good it's code 12 maybe I'll have that so I guess that's it for another week. So, hey, Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with a Hair. All right, Mark, if people want to get in touch with you. Mark R at Smapsoft.com. All right. And as I said before, my name is Tim Mitra. T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So until next time, we'll talk to you later. Bye. 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 This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is Mike Van Ogmans, MTJC's favorite voiceover artist for some reason. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. 
There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. So, Tim, I imagine, or, or Mark, whoever, I, I imagine both of you guys have migrated from one machine to another many multiples of times. Many, probably many times, good, yes. Good, good experience here. So, I haven't done this in a very long time, uh, like actually uh-huh. trying to migrate from one pretty good setup to what I want to be the same setup. What are the best resources to, to follow along to do that? So, right now, I have, um, my current machine is, uh, I did a time machine backup of that, and so I've got an external drive that has a copy of that. I've got um, the machine updated to Catalina, finally, because I know that the new one is going to be on Catalina. So now I want to have basically this setup I have here as seamless as possible moved over to the new MacBook Pro. What What's the best way to, to go about doing that? The last, so last time I last did this, did it was it. like connect a cable from one yeah, to another. Yeah, that's what I was going <laughs> to say. You collect a crossover Ethernet cable and run the tool that Apple provided to do that. Yeah, or get a get a um, like a, a Thunderbolt cable. Like what kind? You have a you have an older Mac, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, because the last time I did that, it, it was like 2014 ish, yeah. moving from one MacBook Pro to another uh, at work. Yeah. And I completely screwed up. Like I tried doing the Mac migration assistant or whatever it's called. And it, it was strange to me because, uh, oh, did, did this copy over like my, my, um, super user as a different user no. than, than what I had on that machine. And, and granted, I didn't, it was a, a, a work provided machine. So I didn't have it from, from, from the get go. Yeah. The yeah. get go. So I don't know if yeah. they set up something on there before. Well, so the bottom, the thing about it is, is underneath the, the hood, there's a user called 501, which is the first administrator account you set up on there. And then you, so any other one, it's like 502, 503, 504, whatever. So if you weren't the first um, user on there, it, the user ID doesn't really matter that much, but I can tell you what I do um, when I move from machine to machine. And this might work for you in this case is I always use the migration assistant. Um, and then, then I just have to worry about a few little things that don't get migrated over, like stuff that I might have, in, that I have put in my library folder directly, like the system library, right? Websites and databases and stuff like that. But um, so yeah, I, I do that. But what I tend to do is I tend to go buy a, like a one terabyte drive or whatever size you need, um, and I use Carbon Copy Cloner to clone um, a copy to that drive, and then I can take that drive and and do the migration assistant from that drive. Like it, it doesn't have to be from a physical Mac; it can be from a volume that has a, a operating system on it. And don't set up any accounts before you do this, right? Just do it straight, and it'll 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 import all the accounts that you've set up there already, and then it'll set up all your applications, all your preferences, all your mail will be all automatically hooked up and all that kind of stuff. All that sort of, you know, the sort of nuances you have to do, get everything hooked up, they'll they'll just get migrated over. It very rarely
rarely screws up. But if you use a, if you use the idea that I'm talking about with the, with the external drive, and and so you have like a pristine backup of your system, like a clone of it, right? Um, you can if it doesn't work out or it fails for whatever reason, you can wipe the machine, the new machine again, and then try it again, right? So you're not really married to it, right? Um, there are other people, other schools of thought who say they like to start with a clean machine and just create a new account and migrate things over, like from, download it from iClouds or whatever, but, um, or from Time Machine. Time Machine is going to take you 14 hours, I can tell you right now. Yeah, I let that sucker run overnight. Yeah, it's still, and then it, and halfway through it fails and you have another 14 hours to wait, right? So that's what the Carbon Copy Cloner will, it'll take you probably maybe 45 minutes to an hour to, to clone them, clone your first Mac. And then it'll take you about that long to, to use the Migration Assistant to get it back, right? So. You can also, okay. you, if you're really brave, you can use Carbon Copy Cloner to clone over the, the new OS too. But um, yeah, I would I would probably use the Migration Assistant because you're going from different hardware to this new one. So what you know what basically what Apple's done is they've put a system into your into the new machine that's suited for that machine, right? And the Migration Assistant will kind of only bring over stuff that's um, different, like not it won't bring over applications and library stuff that that won't work on the machine, but it'll bring your account over. Your your home directory is the most important most important piece of that's where all your preferences and everything are, right? And it'll move it'll move your applications over that you have installed, the ones that will work on the new OS and new new hardware, right? That's probably what I would do. Do a do a clone rather. You can, I mean, the simplest thing is to hook them up like with a firewire cable. Like you can get a you can get like a Thunderbolt to uh, USB adapter from Apple, and then um, so you could use like a Thunderbolt transfer cable to go from the old machine to the new one. It looks like you know it's got the DisplayPort style um, port uh, plug on it, right? And um, mm-hmm. I have one here if you could borrow, but you're a mile away from you. <laughs> um, yeah, or three the, weeks the, and, and twenty dollars later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> shipping the, it over to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always I always buy those cables and just leave them around because I mean I'm constantly like messing with other Macs and migrating things and. You you know, wiping stuff, but the the clone thing. Um, what I do with the carbon copy clone thing is is every like you know fortnight or whatever, I'll go in and just clone my machine, so I've got a backup. And sometimes when I'm traveling to the states, you know, I'll carry the the clone drive with me just in case. You know, I pour you know a, a mojito on my Mac and you know I have to go to the Apple Store and buy a new one. At least I've got a relatively good clone to back up from or restore from. So yeah, so every now and then I'll, I'll I mean I use Time Machine all the time, but that's for like I use that for files. Like you know, for file level backup, I don't really. It's there for disaster, but yeah, if you ever have to restore from it, it's gonna. It's a world of hurt to wait for it, right? But uh, so I find the carbon copy cloner is is much uh, much faster way to do it. Because I mean, then you can you can buy like a, a drive that has a you know a USB thing on it, so you can connect. Uh, you can probably find one that like a, an enclosure that that will have USB C as well as USB on it, so you you won't have trouble connecting to your old Mac and your new Mac, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you've got an interface you can use going forward. Yeah, I've actually uh, the I think it's like a small 1.5 terabyte Samsung uh, USB drive that I got to do the time machine backup. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. As uh, it comes with two cables, it comes with a USB A and a USB C cable. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So you can look at the amount of space, free space you have on there, because I don't know how much space your time machine's used up, but because um, you can probably create a clone of your exist your 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 2013 Mac, um, you probably have enough space to make an image of that. Like, was it a 500? 112 gig drive or something like that. 
I think so, and it wasn't even totally full either. Yeah, so you'll like you you can make a like basically what it does it makes a disk image of of uh, the drive, right? Um, yeah, so you'll just say you know you'll, the target will be like a new clone image, and um, and then when you go to when you go to uh, when you fire up the other Mac and it asks you if you want to migrate your data over from another machine, plug in the USB drive and then point it to the the hard drive image, and it'll mount it as a, as if it's a hard drive. Right. So if I understand the process. Carbon copy, carbon copy cloner of the old Mac yeah. on a, an external drive. So if yeah. anything goes, bad happens, I've at least got that. Yeah. And, and plus you have the old Mac too still, right? Right, right. And then fire up the new Mac. Yeah. Um, use the migration Install assistant carbon, and say... Uh, yeah, use the migration assistant. Yeah, and say, yo, this, use, use this drive yeah. uh, or this volume, I guess, on the drive. It's going to make a DMG of it, right? Of your old drive or your old drive. So you, you point you point the... You can, yeah, you can, you can, you can mount the, the new drive on... Uh, sorry, you mount the carbon copy cloner clone drive onto your desktop and then point to that as the source for, for migration, right? I, I, I'm, I might start with a clean drive, like, or maybe make a partition on that other drive, on the Time Machine drive. You can always blow the partition away later, right? Because with APFS and all the new modern file systems you can make, and you can create partitions and get rid of them without having to reformat the entire thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I, yeah might, you, I might create a, a partition on there. Yeah, and you only have to make it as big as as, as the old drive was, right? Because the other alternative is, yeah, put, put the drive in target mode, like put the old Mac in target mode. That's another way to do it, right? But then you need to have a the Thunderbolt adapter that's going to set you back like 30, 40 bucks, right? And then how often are you going to use it? Unless you have, you have any like, um, like do you have DisplayPort monitor or anything like that? Or The monitor is DisplayPort. That's true. So I, so I'm going to, when I, when I get my, my next Mac, it's going to be USB-C obviously, right? So I'll buy a Thunderbolt 2 to Thunderbolt 3 adapter from Apple. And it's basically, it's a DisplayPort on one end, the the male end is a display port and the female on, on the back of the thing is USB-C, right? And then, then I'll use a USB data transfer cable. By the way, yeah, so the cable that comes with your new Mac is not a data transfer cable. It's a power cable. You'll need to, you, you would, if you didn't have a USB-C cable, you'd have to go buy one. But I think it sounds like you've got one with your, your, your drive, your Samsung drive, right? Yeah, it, it came with two. I had to look. I was like, what's the difference? Like, oh, it's USB-C. Sorry, USB. Yes, I think USB-C on the side that goes into the drive mm-hmm. uh, on, on both of them and the ones that comes out of the drive are either USB A or USB C. Does it have that funny looking um, flat uh, jack on it? Um, I'll, I'll have to dig, to dig it up. I, I had tossed it into the closet after I made the time yeah, machine. Most of the, new, most of the new USB drives have like a doesn't look like the kind that goes into the side that goes into the Mac at all. It looks like a like a sort of a wide, it almost looks like an HDMI with a notch in it, right? Yeah, it's uh, that's power it, and, and data. It was amazing to me how tiny these these yeah. drives are. I, I bought a yeah. drive. I thought not that long ago that's about the same size and this is like a almost like a matchbook in size like i think yeah. you would put it in a in a breast pocket in your, your shirt like yeah and have room to put more stuff in there you mean it's not a two and a quarter inch drive like i don't even I, i'm vaguely remembering the size it felt like a matchbook so when i fried um, my when i fried my um my uh drive last year i went ran over to, to best buy and i bought like an empty case a USB C usb case and i bought a 512 gig um ssd drive right and all in it was like 99 bucks i was amazed like because i remember buying like a 512k drive for 700 bucks or something back you know back in the day right like the drive that runs off carol's carol has an imac upstairs and we don't run it off of the internal drive because it's a it's a mechanical drive and it's painful mm-hmm. so we use that 700 ssd drive the 480 gig then i think about it we use that as the main drive for that it's externals on the back it's bolted onto the back of the imac right yeah i i also have uh, maybe i should try digging 
digging this up. I have a, I think it's a terabyte. I want to say it was called my book or some other yeah, from thing. Western Digital. I think it's a Western Digital. It is enormous. It is like yeah. a physical book, like a hardcover yeah. volume in size, and it has its own separate power supply that you like. like you have a transfer yeah. cable. It's like a USB yeah. cable, but then it also has a power brick that needs to be plugged into the wall. Yeah, and then to put it up against this little thing that's like like a box of matches. Yeah, in size. I have a bunch of CA drives around that I use for for offsite storage. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, altered carbon. Like the size of this drive is kind of like the size of the stack that they have yeah. in their their the base of their spine. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, we're kind of not that far away from altered carbon land if we can figure out the the integration between the computer and the human. Yeah. The the size of the technology is already there. I think I think that um, um, Arthur Clark he calculated that a human being can be stored in a petabyte of data. So yeah, the oldest file I have on here is a joining the cult by Adam Sandler. And it was from 2008 on this machine. This would be the oldest file. But I think the one, the one at Carol's machine upstairs has like even older files than that. Yeah, gotta gotta keep them all. Gotta keep all the Pokemon's. Right. And of course, I've restored files from my old uh, floppy disks and stuff like that as well. With some really old puppies on there. And I got, I got, of course, got my Drobo network drive as well. He was on that guy. That's where I keep my music. Except now that I'm on iCloud, everything seems to be on the iCloud, right? Do you yeah, use, that's, that's true. Do you use Apple Music, Mark? Like, yeah, uh, I do. I'll talk. Yeah. yeah. So I've got some. Uh, 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 files here that go back to 95. Let's see how far back can I go? I found, I, I, just cut, I didn't realize I put the CD that I had on my, oh, 91. I'm back to 91 here. Oh, yeah, I have a font, remember font DA mover, Mark? Yeah. Oh, wait, I have some 68K yeah. stuff. Yeah, I've got a font, I've got font DA mover. Of course, it won't run on <laughs> current systems at all. Right. That's I think used the fonts used fonts. to be in that special yeah, package. Yeah, controlled C devs, right? C devs? Yeah. SCSI probe, remember SCSI probe? Yeah, you haven't had a SCSI drive in a long time. <laughs> no, I've got, yeah, I, I should just, uh, just resurrected some the other day. Well, I mean, remember yeah, Mode 32? The first piece of uh, shareware I ever bought was Mode 32. Remember that? No, what was that? Oh, maybe that's not the one I'm thinking of. Uh, this one goes back to 92. This was, this was uh, added 32-bit um, capabilities to your Mac. Oh. And the first one I had was a F, it was an FPU. Like, remember the floating point unit? They, they didn't, a couple of Macs didn't have floating point units mm-hmm. in them. Yeah. So that was the first piece of shareware I ever bought from a guy. And I ran into him like at a Macworld in Boston, right? And I'm like, oh, hey, I bought your software. And he's like, oh, thanks for buying my software. <laughs> I think a lot of people just downloaded it, right? Mm. So I call Soft FPU, I think it was called. If I have it on. It's really taking me back there. I think the first shareware I ever paid for was WinZip, I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, obviously, that's on Windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that one. I used to have that, too. I have a thing called Access PC, which let me read files off of uh, Windows disks. Oh, I got some system folder stuff here. Control panels to save. Remember, remember Extension Manager, Mark? I sure do. Yeah. yeah. That was the best thing since sliced bread. Because half the time, your app, your Mac wouldn't boot up because of some stupid extension. Yeah. Or it would crash all the time. Some third party picture. Yeah. And then we had the control control strip. Yep. Yep. That oh, was the dock fun. in the early days. Yeah. 91. How many years ago is that? A long time ago, right? 30, 30 years? Almost 30 years? Long, long time ago, I mean. Oh, look, I got some time machine backups on this drive, too. Oh, here's a folder called floppies. What's in there? Ooh, floppy disks. I have some 400K images. Wow, those are old. Imagine how many files you get on a 400K floppy, I mean. Single, <laughs> single-sided. Yeah, man. <laughs> oh, there's my desktop. I have a copy of Photoshop 1.0 disk image. That's what I put on my um, my iPad, right? In that emulator that I run. Good old software. And I mean, old, emphasis 
is on the old. Oh, there's my tops Mac image I was talking about earlier for networking. Yeah, I think what I forgot to mention in the in that early Mac office thing is that System Seven was the first operating system that had peer-to-peer networking from Apple. I'm going to have the backups of the more than just code here all the way back to episode number one. So how about that uh, coronavirus that is causing remember? chaos? Yeah. I heard uh, today that there's like um, fourteen thousand people infected in China with that. Yeah. If you're going to catch a virus from SARS. a beer, it should at least be a good beer, you know. <laughs> you can get it from a beer? Corona. Corona. Right. <laughs> Bad joke. Well, it's because they didn't use the lime to, yeah, to soften it. it right? yeah. <clears throat> Corona. Such a jokester, that work guy. Yeah, I shipped up something out from eBay yesterday, and they've got this new... Um, Shippo, it's called. Um, it ties into your eBay, eBay account with Canada Post, so automatically prints out the label and t- he gets a discount and ties to your like to the sale on eBay, and you, have, you don't have to do anything. Like it automatically puts all the information in, which is nice. Do you use eBay a lot? No, I, I just happened. I had a uh, Bruce Coburn book that I Carol Carol put all my music books in storage, and so and it's like hard to get to, and I don't know where it is, and I, I mean I know where it is, but I don't know where she's put everything. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to play some stuff, and you know, of course she's put all my tablature away and, and it's not available online because he's a kind of obscure artist right and uh oh have you tried songster no but uh i've gone to the ultimate guitar tabs and all that kind of stuff right anyway, so tends to be better well so but I, but i had the book i mean she gave yeah. me the book back in like in the early 90s right and and anyway so I, I scoured the internet and finally found a copy on ebay from texas so i bought it and it came to me it was like it had never been opened kind of thing it was like i mean old and faded like it was like clearly like a 30 year old book but yeah. um, so I so I basically scanned it with my with my scanner and turned them into PDFs and then I put it back on eBay to sell it right mm. so and somebody bought it in Vancouver yeah, so I, I mean I sell things occasionally Songster has if I had a rocket launcher box yeah. glove joy yeah. to the world sunwheel yeah. dance Lord of the yeah. Starfields silver wheels all the diamonds in the world Peter Idris wondering where the lions are if a tree falls the coldest night of the year the charity but are they done night. in are they done in like somebody's typed them out in tablature or are they like scans of sheet music no it's amazing <laughs> go to songster.com right now and check it out you'll be amazed I'll do a podcast first and then I'll go back and check out Songster <laughs> Um, it's got everything in tab. You can, yeah. it, it will play the song. Oh, yeah, yeah. I may have stumbled across that. I, I usually just do a search and then search for something tab and then, all right. Yeah, Songster's available on the iPad too, which is it's a pretty amazing app. Is it free app. on the iPad? It was when I bought it or downloaded yeah. it, I think. Well, maybe it wasn't free. Two hours? Strong but I paid for it. Two hours? Two hours, yeah. All right. Yeah, I think I've been over here before. Let's see, Coburn. Anyway, this has all, all this, the, the thing I'm talking about, it has all this early stuff. Mm. Yeah, so they got like, they got like, some of these songs are in or in the um I have two books by Coburn, right? And the first one is better. It's written by like a real fan kind of thing. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah oh, this is one. Yeah, yeah, you can listen to it. It'll play. Oh, I can learn how to play Stairway to Heaven finally. There you go. Just you're just never allowed to go and into a guitar store. You're never allowed to play it in public. I know. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That and uh, Enter Sandman and uh, Smoke on the Water. Classical Gas. You know, they play Classical Gas. Well, maybe these and days it, you are because it's less. It's more obscure now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but that's an acoustic piece, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. kind of a classicalish. Yeah, I just remember when I was younger. My cousin, I always wanted to play guitar. My, my parents would never buy me a guitar. And then my cousin from India sent a tape over him of him playing the song, like like a, like a master. And I'm like, what? How come he gets to do it? And you know, anyway. So I was talking to one of our uh, our young engineers from Toronto today. Oh yeah, Toronto. And yeah. Uh, by the way, I just want to po- point in interject here that Siri says Toronto correctly. How do you say Toronto? Well, it's it's not Toronto. 
Toronto. It's Toronto. Toronto. We kind of we kind of roll over the last T, right? Oh, okay. Like Rano. Toronto. You know? so she actually says Toronto, like like Toronto. like we do. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Right. So anyway, so I was explaining about uh, the Rush song YYZ and how it's based on the airport, but it's the airport code in Morse code. Yeah, it's in Morse code. Yeah. Right. So they thought that was interesting, but had never heard of Rush, which disappointed me. What? They're Canadian. Yeah. So I said, "Wow." That's, I'm calling. I'm calling the Canadian consul right now. Getting yeah. Those exactly. Yeah. Out of Canada. So then I said, "Hmm. Have you ever heard of uh, this other uh, big band that was big in Canada? Uh, tragically hip." <laughs> really? Nope. Never heard of it. How old are these people? Twenty three, twenty four. Just turned twenty four. This this one. Oh, they've probably heard of Justin Bieber and and. Uh... Then I then I asked, "You ever heard of Neil Young?" And you said, oh, oh, that, God. "That sounds familiar." Yeah. Joni Mitchell? No, never heard of her. Wow. Yeah. The guess who they probably never heard of. Oh, I guarantee you they've never heard of the guess who. That, that one's way more. Ride. That one's way more obscure than the other ones we mentioned. Or Steppenwolf. <laughs> yeah. Or Lighthouse. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know uh, Lighthouse. Wait a minute. What's Lighthouse? You don't know Lighthouse? No. no. They were. They were. The thing about Lighthouse, they had. Uh, there was. I don't know. There was like a Pepsi Coke uh, bottle cap collecting thing where you had to collect all the people from each band. Hmm. And I just remember Lighthouse had like eleven people in it. No. And it was like it was like the one to collect because it had all the all the people in it. Anyway, but it's, uh, they they. I mean, I'm probably gonna get yelled at for saying this, but I think they were like a one hit wonder. They had uh, this okay. one song, yeah. one song called "One Bright Morning," mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting riff. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of Canadian bands, um, like a lot of stuff from Breadbone was like a, a indigenous band. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just I think uh, Carly Rae Jessup is that uh, ring a bell with you guys? Yeah, I know the name. Call me yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they probably know her. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Drake, uh, of course, they know Drake. Drake, yeah, yeah. Drake, yeah. Yeah. Drake. I remember him when he was on Degrassi Junior High. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know that. Was that a TV show? Yeah. 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 It was a uh, Jurassic, Jurassic Street was a sort of a um, public television kind of thing that started, you know, way back when. And then they did Jurassic Junior High. Mm. It was on for many, many years. Um, so Jaime's being a little quiet over there. I'm wondering if he's ever heard of any of these bands that we've been <laughs> I, I, was, I didn't do one by one. Uh, Joni Mitchell didn't ring a bell. All the other ones oh. did. Even if I couldn't necessarily say, oh, yeah, here's a, you know, headlining song that I know. Yeah. Um, but at least, you know, Name wise, familiar with most of what you. Well, you've heard of Nickelback. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, apparently they're coming out on tour. Uh, you get an emails from uh, Live Nation, which is one of our Ticketmaster affiliates up here. Mm-hmm. I think it is Ticketmaster, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. Look, there's Stairway to Heaven again. Okay. Um, you actually not know how to play it. I've played. I, I don't know the actual. I don't know the actual finger picking, but I, I kind of know the chord progression because occasionally, like you know, somebody will break into it in the middle of a jam session. But we I've, we've never actually played it in our like I played in a, like with a bunch of guys for like fifteen years. Yeah, and we would play, we'd play we'd play some pretty obscure stuff and you know a lot of Pink Floyd and Beatles and Stones and stuff like that. Uh, but we never uh, we do a lot of that a lot of Zeppelin like you know um, Ramble On and uh, Rock and Roll. Uh, like we used to do we used to do uh, Johnny Be Good and then roll into into um, Rock and roll because mm-hmm. it's the same song, mm-hmm. um, and don't tell the lawyers that because somebody will get sued. Um, and then, um, well, Led Zeppelin stole everything else they did. So. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Led Zeppelin's had a hard enough time with the lawyers as it is. Yeah. You know, they're you know don't, they're running don't out of money. send us nasty letters. We like Led Zeppelin, yes. but we just we, igno- we just acknowledge that they did steal a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they were they were doing blues. I mean, so was so the Stones, right? The Stones did a lot of blues stuff in the early days. They didn't they didn't write all their original stuff. Yeah, so. not all, not only played, the blues stuff. Blackwater Side. Yeah, I think you was, talked about that one yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was that the that's the uh, that was the version that got stolen? What was what was the Zeppelin version called? Black uh, oh, Black, Black Mountain, Mountain side. Some Black jam Mountain, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yes, Siri Bob, and apparently they stole Stairway to Heaven too from uh, another band. Anyway, that they toured with. Oh, from um, yeah. What was the name of that band? Uh, it doesn't matter. Spirit. It really doesn't matter. Spirit. Does it matter, Jaime? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to be factually accurate about so, these so let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my story about music production. So, and part of the reason why we do this podcast is because one of my electives in university I had to do an elective in fine arts, but outside of my discipline, which was visual arts. And so I took a course on music, and it was called experiment. It was experimental music, like so it was like Stockhausen and you know synthesizer stuff, and we played with tape loops and all kind of stuff, right? And I remember I did a piece once that the teacher really liked. I didn't know anything about music at the time. Like, I had no music theory, whatever, so he kind of just cringed at the fact that it was in his class. But um, but it was a lot of studio technique we learned about tapes and, you know, synthesizers and stuff like that. And um, so one of the things I did was I set up a tape loop, and I took a sample off of Tales of Topographic Oceans, which I always thought was Bill Bruford, but it turns out it was actually Alan White. But anyway, so I took this this sort of drum piece from, like, side three, really obscure thing, and I, and I basically looped it and layered it and whatever, made it sound really sort of like, you know, interesting, but the original sample was from the actual album. And I remember, this is like 1982, 83 maybe, and the teacher just went off, like, like went off, because, went, like, like, they actually showed, like, they played my piece in a, in, a, in a recital and the whole bit, he was really happy with it, and then we were talking about how we made it, I said, well, I started out with this little sample, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, which wasn't, we didn't call them samples back then, right? And he just, like, blew up, and, like, the whole class was like, oh my god, I can't believe you did that. And then, like three years later, sampling becomes a thing. You know, you could have been rich. Well, not not that I invented sampling <laughs> there, but I'm, but my point is like like you know it was it became a legitimate you know way of of you know building other songs using somebody else's sample, right? So mm-hmm. oh, well, I just picked the wrong track. I was supposed to pick the 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 drum sample from the the what was the name James Brown track, the one that everybody uses in all the hip hop songs, but nah, wasn't anything like that. Mm. Somewhere around here, I have a half inch tape with it on it. Anywho, um, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. All right. Well, I gotta go uh, rescue a build and send it in. I forgot to check it at six o'clock. See if it was finished on the build server. All right. And we're we're getting okay. close to release. Good luck. One more round mm-hmm. of regression testing, and that's it. But all the bugs squished. All the ones we can find anyway. Alrighty. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.